Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. And over the past few weeks, people across the planet have been engaging in some serious football frenzy with the 2014 World Cup. Duking it out in Brazil are 32 teams from the world over. But you don't need to jet to Sao Paulo or Rio de Janeiro to get that global feel. Here in the D.C. region, more than a fifth of our population hails from another country. Of these foreign-born folks, 40% come from Latin America, 35% from Asia, 14% from Africa, and 9% from Europe. And this week on Metro Connection, we're paying tribute to them all with Global DC, our annual look at the multicultural metropolis that is Washington. We'll kick things off in northwest D.C. in DuPont Circle, where hundreds of Washingtonians gathered Thursday for an open-air viewing of the World Cup match between the U.S. and Germany. We sent our fearless interns Julie Alderman and Lindsay Sperber out there to bring us a little of the action. I'm supporting both because I'm an American and I'm of German heritage. USA! 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 There's a bit of um, smart talking stuff, but I don't know, we're going to win, so... It's no, fine. we're going to win. We're going to beat you guys. I think the soccer is about as exciting as watching paint dry, but I love a good party, and that's why I'm here in DuPont to watch the game. Cheer Team USA, and uh, I love the, our German friends as well. Those were World Cup fans watching Thursday's USA-Germany match on massive screens in DuPont Circle. And in case you missed it, sorry U.S. fans, Germany clinched a victory over the States with one goal. Now, 15 miles from our fans outdoors, servers and cooks and diners have been keeping tabs on the World Cup at a restaurant in Alexandria, Virginia. They've been rooting for the Bosnian national team, which made its World Cup debut this year. Lauren Ober takes us to the Cosmopolitan Grill for a story about football, food, and the bonds that keep D.C.'s tiny Bosnian community together. It's early Saturday morning, and Amela Zvalina is working a ball of dough in her hands. She flattens the ball and gingerly pulls at the sides. Each tug spreads the dough thinner and thinner until before I know it, the ball of dough is now a gossamer sheet covering two long workspaces like a sheer tablecloth. I use my fingers very, very gently and pull it on the side. And so, there you go. It's all over the table. It's so thin I can see your fingers through it. That's amazing that it doesn't rip. I guess because I'm doing it so long time, it's just a matter of practice, you know. So our girls in Bosnia a long time ago need to do that before they married, or marriage is in the question. But now it's no more like that. That's that, that's a that's long time ago. These days, Zvalina's dough handling doesn't determine whether she gets a good husband. She already nabbed one of those. But her livelihood and her reputation kind of depend on it. Zvalina and her husband, Ivica, own Cosmopolitan Grill, a United Nations sort of restaurant tucked into a nondescript shopping plaza in Alexandria. They cook Bosnian, German, and American food, which is served by waitstaff from Romania, Bulgaria, and Tunisia, among other places. Today, Svelina is making her specialty, a pastry called burek, for the restaurant's World Cup party later in the evening. Burek are generally filled with meat, cheese, spinach, or potato, and are often served as lunch in Bosnia. I don't have it on the menu. I do it by order only one day in advance. Because it has to be uh, made in the morning, because the kitchen is so small, you see how small it is. It is really, really bad. So I have to finish it before 11, people coming inside, and then they start order coming. So I have to get out of the kitchen. She's not kidding. 
The kitchen is tiny. I'm constantly bumping into restaurant staff as I follow Zvalina around the table. But in the 10 years since the couple opened the Cosmopolitan Grill, they've made the space work. They've had to. Going back home to Bosnia wasn't an option. The war started and kind of, it's really scary. I had a little child, one and a half years old, and the situation was really bad and scary and dangerous. So we decided to escape from Bosnia and we went to Germany because Red Cross had some plans to to take the people and give them a home and food and job and stuff like that. After a decade in Germany, the couple and their two children faced a decision. Return to a Bosnia they would no longer recognize or strike out on their own in the U.S. They chose the latter. The family moved to Northern Virginia, and Zvalina and her husband both scored jobs at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Pentagon City. Oh, I was doing so cute job. It was uh, serving English high tea. Of course, that was when I learned some English. But before I learned some English, I had to spend nine years in housekeeping like a turn-down service lady. So I was knocking on the door and was like, turn-down service, and they put some chocolate on the pillows and stuff like that. And now I'm here. <laughs> And by here exactly, Zvalina means hunched over the table in the restaurant's postage stamp-sized kitchen, spooning a cottage cheese mixture onto the stretched-out dough. Once she's made two parallel rows of fillings, Zvalina is ready to roll. So now I am taking side of the dough, which is hanging from the table down, and I put it on the top, on the filling, from both sides, from four sides, actually. And then I'm going to roll it. This is the next thing. One ball of dough makes about eight pieces of burek. By the time the soccer game comes on, Zvalina has made about 80 servings. The Bosnian community in the D.C. region isn't big, but it's vocal. There's no sport its members love more than soccer, and there's no better place to watch their team than the Cosmopolitan. Mirzo Babek is one of many Bosnians who pack into the restaurant for the Bosnian-Nigeria World Cup game. Let us play Bosnia. I put flag and come in restaurant, watch game with my friends. Are you a big football fan? Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. That's your first in my life. It's first? That's your first. Everything is second. The game is a nail-biter for the Bosnian fans. The refereeing is dodgy, and the Nigerians are a stronger, more muscular team. But Ivica Svalina and his daughter Carmela still hold out hope. We want to score. We want to score twice. It's no problem. We need a little bit of time. Yeah. It'll be okay. Positive attitude is what we need. Let's go. Sadly for the Svalina family and the diners at the Cosmopolitan, Nigeria wins the match, knocking Bosnia out of contention. But on the bright side, the Borak are a hit. Svalina sells out of the pastries. And that makes all of her hard work earlier in the day worth it. But she definitely would prefer to win. I'm Lauren Ober.
now to another mega sporting event, albeit one that won't happen for another 10 years, the 2024 Summer Olympics. Washington, D.C. joins Boston, San Francisco, and Los Angeles on the U.S. Olympic Committee's shortlist of potential hosts for the Games. The USOC probably won't decide until next year whether it'll actually make a bid. But in the meantime, the idea is sparking mixed emotions among Washingtonians. I think to hold the Olympic game here is a great idea. I think it's a terrible idea. I think it would be a wonderful place for people to come and see the nation's capital. The security would have to be heightened. I don't believe the financial investment will be worth the return. All right, so there are definitely some worries and concerns going on here, and some of them, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Are echoed by the experts. Do you mind if I shut the door? That's fine. Including this one, whom I met recently at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Economics professor Dennis Coates specializes in something known as sports economics. What is that? Well, sports economics is really the application of economic tools to the business of sports. So we focus on issues like profitability of leagues and of clubs, whether or not stadiums and franchises have positive economic impact on the local community, and whether mega events are all they're cracked up to be. Professor Coates has analyzed all sorts of mega events and how they've affected their host countries and cities. And when it comes to something like the 2024 Summer Olympics, he says, well, he'd definitely try and go if they came to the D.C. region. They're probably not worth what he calls the touted benefits. Income growth, job creation, tax revenue increases. In fact, he wrote a paper analyzing what it cost the United States to host the 1994 World Cup and discovered that, in the end, we actually took a pretty big hit. The 1994 World Cup, it was touted as a great success with $5 billion, I think, is the figure of benefits to the U.S. And, of course, that's not $5 billion to one city, but $5 billion across the entire United States. With uh, you know, a couple trillion dollar economy, $5 billion is really kind of a drop in the bucket. But let's suppose that we did get those benefits. They didn't accrue all to the same places. They didn't accrue necessarily to people who you might think would benefit. You know, it wasn't increased wages and things of that sort. It was more higher profits in hotels and, and things of that sort. On the other hand, much of the evidence is that there wasn't such benefits. So Victor Matheson and Rob Boddy did a study, and they found that, by and large, most of the cities that hosted saw a decline relative to what would have happened had they not hosted the event. Why would a decline happen? The chief reason, I think, is basically the crowds. People respond to the possibility of these crowds, if they're locals, by saying one of two things. One is, I'm getting out of Dodge, (laughs) which means that there's a lot of flight, so normal expenditures don't occur. Or the other is, I'm not leaving my house. So Craig Depkin and I have called them the hunker down and the skedaddle effects. (laughs) You know, and so what we're really thinking about is what will happen if nothing else changes. But the problem is that other things do change. There's substitution activities. And evidence from Germany, from Wolfgang Manning, uh, looking at the 2006 World Cup, what he found was, yes, during the World Cup, there was a lot of tourism. The problem was counteracting reductions in the month before the World Cup and the months after the World Cup. So it was basically what are called time switchers. People decided to go during the event as opposed to the month before or the month after. On net, there was no change. 
So those are the sorts of things that lead to skepticism, to say the least, about what kind of benefits will accrue because of these events. Well, talking about those benefits, those touted benefits that we've been exploring here, some people, including members of DC 2024, which, as we know, is, is the group of local business leaders who are advocating most heartily for the summer games to come to Washington. Um, some people are arguing that the Olympics and other big mega sporting events can help bring needed infrastructure to cities, things like new apartments, public transit. And Mayor Gray, Mayor Vincent Gray of Washington, has even suggested that bringing the Olympics to DC could be a great way to boost development in the eastern part of the city. So you're saying that's that's a load of bunk? That I'm not going to say is a load of bunk. What I will say, though, is that it's a little bit of a bait and switch. If you need the infrastructure, build the infrastructure. You don't need to throw a party for the world to justify spending the money to redo highways, to pave some roads, to maybe work on the subway system a little bit or whatever. Well, justify it if it's deserves doing. It it doesn't need a party to justify it. And the same with the apartment complexes and so on. Yes, you can do all of that. What about all of the things that you don't need, like a velodrome or a place to do um, whitewater rafting and things of that sort? I mean, there's a, a lot of white elephants that go with these things as well. Dennis Coates is an economics professor at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. We want to know what you think about the ultimate global games coming to D.C. Good idea? Bad? Let us know on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMUMetro. Or send an email to metro at WAMU.org. After the break... Mexican music with a political spin. Every single step of progress in civil rights in this country was always accompanied and energized by music. That's just ahead as our global D.C. edition of Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. We'll continue today's Global DC show with the remarkable journey of a young woman who hails from Mongolia and just graduated from Washington Lee High School in Arlington, Virginia. Her story is the first in Beating the Odds, special correspondent Kavitha Cardoza's series about high school students who overcome often overwhelming challenges on the road to success. As soon as you meet Enkjin Tovshinzaya, you know you'll someday say, I knew her when. She looks like a porcelain figurine, gentle and poised, but she also has a steely core of determination. Inkjin came to the U.S. when she was eight years old and had never been in school before. When I came here, they put me in the second grade, and first it was really weird. Her classmates seemed to know what was going on. They were able to understand, pick up things while I couldn't, and I always had to ask them. And, like, um, they'll kind of give me the cold shoulders, like, how can you not know that? Inkjin couldn't ask her parents for help because they didn't speak any English either. And they were struggling with their own transitions from Mongolia often working seven days a week. My dad used to be a banker. My mom used to be an accountant, and they came here. And my dad had to, like, do gardening. He had to work at a delivery company. 
And my mom, she worked at like small restaurants as servers. They were rarely home when Engchen's school day was done. It was scary because I'm eight years old and I have to find my own bus route and then come back home, call my parents, and then I'll do my homework and they'll, they have prepared food for me and I wait for them to come home. Engchen's parents told her to stay in her bedroom when she got home so the neighbors wouldn't see her. They warned her it wasn't okay in America for a little child to stay home alone. I want to look through the window because like, there are kids playing and I can't because like, there's the sense in me that the police might see me and they would take me away from my parents. And there was another issue. Since I was very little, my parents told me, okay, uh, we are illegal here, so you can't tell anybody this. So I felt like I had made a sin as a little girl, like I had this huge secret. In the fifth grade, she transitioned out of English as a second language classes. I got my first straight A's, which made me really proud. And I'm still in contact with my fifth grade teacher. Since then on, I started getting straight A's. And then I started taking APIB classes during my high school years. Engchen restarted a defunct Red Cross club. She organized a winter coat drive, volunteered in nursing homes, and served meals to the homeless. At the same time, she was looking after her baby sister, interpreting for her parents, and filling out college applications. Engchen says this past academic year was the most important of all and also the most difficult. Then it got worse. My mom called me. There's a nurse at her house. Can you please come home? Hurry, because she couldn't understand it. Engchen had to tell her mother the results of a mammogram. So I came home and then the nurse said that um, the results were abnormal and there is a growth of breast cancer. We were in shock because we didn't have insurance. We didn't know how the health system worked. We didn't have any family members here. After the nurse left, um, she started crying. So I told her, "Um, Mom, it's okay. Like, it's going to be fine. Like, it's only the early stage. I mean, we can get through this. And I had to be strong for her because I was her older daughter. As her mother went through three biopsies, surgery and chemotherapy, Engchen had to navigate a complex maze dealing with hospital staff, insurance agents, and stacks of paperwork. Some of the hospitals, they'll be like, please stop calling me, like, I'll try to reach a doctor, and like, this is not the right time, and I'll call again, and like, this is what's happening. It's like, didn't I just tell you? Or like, you know, they'll be kind of rude, and I mean, but there are a lot of nice people also. (laughs) The nurse was like, I'll be with you throughout the entire way. If you have any questions, call us. And those parts were good. But then once we started going to the appointments, they were like, oh, a doctor's visit for 10 minutes, $270. We're like, what? (laughs) Engchen's father lost his job. And so she took two jobs after school and on weekends to help pay the immediate bills. But she never lost sight of the long term. I was their hope, basically, because I could speak English. This was the year that was the most pressure, the year that I had to try my best because at least if I did well in school, it would take a lot of weight off their shoulders. Engchen didn't realize there were tens of thousands of undocumented students just like her across the country. Students who were brought here illegally but can now stay because of a change in immigration policy that grants temporary legal status to young people like Engchen as long as they meet certain criteria, such as having lived here for five years, served in the military, or as students. Engchen says her family and teachers were very supportive, but the college application process was still challenging because of her immigration status. My friends, they just go online, okay, fill out an application, boom, they're done. Me, I had to like call every school, and some of the admission officers didn't even know whether I was eligible. I had to call them like five, six times. 
Finally, they'll be like, okay, apply as an international student. And I'm like, why do I apply as an international when I've been here all my life? I learned the history of America. I went through the whole education system. Like, America, I love it here. She just kept applying for scholarships, knowing as a non-citizen she wasn't eligible for many. If I looked at like a list of 50 scholarships, I was only eligible for 10. And even if I was eligible and I applied, I didn't know whether I was going to get it. But I just kept trying, like no matter how tired I was, I like applied to even scholarships for people who played sports and I didn't play sports. Obviously, I didn't get it, but I realized that you just got to keep trying it to get the results. Her tenacity paid off. I have the Dream Project Scholarship, I have the Esperanza Scholarship, I got the Arlington Community Foundation Scholarship, and I also got the Rotary Scholarship. Her world is slowly growing more stable. Her mother is recovering, and her father has found another job at a granite installation company. What keeps me motivated is to get an education for myself and get a stable job where I can support my parents because they're not going to have retirement money. They work so hard, but one day they're going to be old and I don't want them to do those hard, laborious jobs. And I also want to help my sister get to college. Engchen was the valedictorian of her class and is going to James Madison University this fall to major in international business. Her strategy, she says, will be the same as it's always been, to grab every opportunity because Engchen believes if you work hard enough, anything can happen. I'm Kabita Kadusa. Special thanks to Kristen Sorensen for contributing to this report. You can hear more of Kavita's Beating the Odds series in the coming weeks. Partial support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. now to the Mount Pleasant neighborhood of Washington to meet some lawyers, students, activists, and translators who share a love for something very particular, traditional folk music from Mexico's Caribbean coast. They call themselves Cosita Seria and regularly play this folk music at protests and fundraisers focusing on workers and tenants' rights and immigration reform. Alice Olstein introduces us to this music collective, who's combined Mexican, Salvadoran, Colombian, German, Peruvian, and Washingtonian heritage, has blended into a distinctively D.C. medley. Human rights lawyer Salvador Sarmiento grew up listening to and playing traditional Mexican son jarocho music in Santa Ana, California, and he brought it with him when he moved to D.C., once you're exposed to these traditions, it's hard to be without them. Along with his friend Anna Duncan, a D.C. native and Spanish-English interpreter, he founded the group Cosita Seria. So Son Cosita Seria literally means a little serious thing. We're, we're not a band, we're a musical project around people coming together and learning this music. But at some point we like needed something to call it <laughs> so we could invite people to come and join us. And I think the Son Cosita Seria captures a little bit of, you know, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We're also about having fun.
Members started breaking out their instruments at parties and at jam sessions in Malcolm X Park, drawing in both seasoned musicians and people like husband and wife Priscilla Rodriguez and Kilaf Leg, who had never held a string instrument in their lives. We just started like streaming, like just like without notes. And even that is difficult. And then like probably after two or three sessions, we started with the notes. And then we did those together and then soul. And we did that like for one minute and I felt like in communion. I was like, it was so beautiful. I, 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 I was speechless. And I was like, I was, I was playing it and we were all playing together. And you get to this magical place where you feel like your soul is being soaring to heaven. And that kind of feeling that you belong to a community, we all need that. How many of us feel completely lost in this city? Priscilla is from Mexico City. Kilof was born in Lebanon and grew up in England and Ireland. They both said joining the Cosita Seria Music Collective gave them a sense of belonging. And for me, I mean, as a foreigner, I don't have any family besides my husband. It's so, um, so beautiful that the support that you can, you can have for, from somebody that you don't actually know. And it's like supporting you and it's like, wow, it's like, you know, you adopt a family. And also for us, like for Mexicans, now I'm feeling like more Mexican and more like proud of being Mexican because somehow I'm learning from, you know, this beautiful tradition. The Son Jarocho genre comes from a blending of cultures dating back to colonial times in Mexico's state of Veracruz. African slaves, indigenous peasants, and Spanish colonizers all contributed to the music's percussive rhythms, rhyming stanzas, and call-and-response structure. Salvador Sarmiento says the current makeup of the DC group is a natural continuation of these origins. If anything, Cosita Seria is from a tradition of folks that always came from the periphery. And, so, and the same thing about, you know, a lot of folks that live in Washington, D.C. and have lived here for a long time, they're in the center, you know, the city that's the center of power, but they find themselves in, on the periphery of their own city. And so Cosita Seria and, and the members, all the, the, taller, the folks that participated in the taller, the workshop, we are definitely, you know, in the city that is a, a center of power, but at the same time, many of us are immigrants or from immigrant families that are, you know, fighting against that center of power. Like Salvador, who works for the immigrant rights group National Day Labor Organizing Network, many of Cosita Seria's members are activists. When they aren't playing for fun, they can be found strumming and singing at demonstrations around D.C., many of them calling for immigration reform. Priscilla Rodriguez, an environmental lawyer, said she began to notice a difference between how people treated regular marchers and protesters. Okay, like, cool, good for them, good luck and how people reacted when she and the other jaraneros played and sang protest songs. Literally everybody, like, look at us, like, very surprised. And then they smile. And I felt very, very powerful and very proud. For these rallies and marches, Cosita Seria's members sometimes take turns making up new lyrics, adapting traditional songs hundreds of years old, so they speak to current realities. 
it's a constantly evolving uh, genre, right? Each song has an infinite number of verses that could be sung for it, and people are always writing new verses about all different things. So again, I think that's one of the things that kind of lends itself really well to talking about what's happening currently. And so that's kind of you know a really good example also of where people are are using the music using the culture to draw attention to a really critical issue to you know the the horrors of what is our current immigration system and and the border and how that you know separates people both in a political way but also in like a very real physical way even for the group's members who don't work for activist nonprofits like Kilof Leg taking the music to the streets makes them feel engaged and energized. If you live in a, like a, a super powerful city like D.C., uh, it is very easy to become a bit cynical. Most of us somewhere have this hope that uh, you know, things will be a bit better. And I think a lot of us have become too cynical and just don't see the hope. And what we need is food. We need food to, motive, to drive us, to move us forward. And music is probably the single most powerful motivational food that we have. Several members of Cosita Siria have moved away over the years, but new ones have always taken their place. The Jaraneros of Washington, D.C. say they're confident that this tradition from the jungles and beaches of Mexico will live on in the neighborhoods of the nation's capital. I'm Alice Olstein. For this next story, we'll stay on the music beat as we explore the local and global roots of the banjo. A new exhibit at the Baltimore Museum of Industry explores the instrument's path from the shores of West Africa to the workshops of Maryland to stages and homes across the world. Jared Walker met up with the exhibit's curators and brings us this story. That's Greg Adams playing Yankee Doodle Dandy on a replica of a banjo built more than 160 years ago by William Boucher in Baltimore, Maryland. It's a fairly innocuous-looking instrument, but Adams says it was the catalyst for an incredible, sometimes ugly, and largely untold part of Maryland history. This exhibit looks at the banjo as a Maryland tradition since at least the late 1740s. And the main themes of the exhibit are looking at the convergence of slavery, minstrelsy, and industry, and how is the banjo a part of those intersecting cultural expressions. Co-curator Pete Ross says the exhibit, called Making Music, the Banjo in Baltimore and Beyond, also hopes to quickly dispel any notion that the modern instrument is solely a product of folk art. It's not simply this traditional object that's just appeared magically in the Americas. It is, in a lot of ways, a commercial construct, and so much of that history is here in Maryland. So why Maryland? Co-curator Bob Winan shows me a map of the United States dotted with 58 points, each representing known colonial-era banjo sightings. More than half of the dots are in Maryland. There's clearly a large slave population, and clearly among those uh, enslaved Africans, you have lots of banjo players. On top of that, Pete Ross says Baltimore in particular was the perfect home for the first mass-produced banjo. 
Baltimore is a crossroads where the agrarian south and the industrialized north met. So we have this African technology. The engineering it took to make a banjo was common here, as Bob showed in the map early in it. And then we have the largest industrial center below the Mason-Dixon line. So this was all present here. So that's reason number two that the banjo happened here. The three men also unearthed the surprising third reason. We found as we worked on these on this project that there were all these music shops and instrument makers over four or five blocks of downtown Baltimore starting in the, fir- in the first half of the 19th century. Also, throughout that area were a large number of theaters. Those theaters introduced the banjo to white American culture as a part of the minstrel shows in the 1830s. pop music craze, we know as the, as the minstrel show, guys performing in blackface, imitating, mocking black people. That's white guys imitating black people. As it takes off, these instrument makers couldn't have missed, hmm, there's this new instrument. People are all excited about the banjo. It was the centerpiece of the minstrel show. So there was opportunity. By the early 1840s, a German immigrant, an instrument maker named William Boucher, set up the first banjo shop in Baltimore. Builders like Boucher modified the instrument with European technology, adding key components like a drum body and tuning pegs. Other shops soon opened in Baltimore to meet the demand of the banjo-starved public, and demand was intense. As shocking as it may seem today, minstrelsy actually became a worldwide phenomenon. It's, it's one of those watershed moments in our popular music history. It's like Elvis... It's like the Beatles landing. It's like Louis Armstrong hitting records. Everything's changed. Everybody's obsessed with it. And more so than those moments, this is the moment where, in the writings of the time, people are saying, this is our first really American thing. This is us. This is not coming from cultures we brought with us from the old world. This is our first identifiable indigenous cultural contribution to the world music. In a way, Ross says this instrument's flawed history mirrors America's own imperfect story. The more I learn about it, the more perfect I think it is to call it America's instrument because it's, it covers so much turf in the history of our country. The race stuff, the class stuff, the capitalist stuff. And the exhibit doesn't pull any punches. While celebrating the cultural impact of the banjo, making music doesn't shy away from the racism associated with the instrument's minstrel past. Adams says the purpose isn't to shock visitors. He just hopes to answer a simple question. How do we take the complexities of racism, slavery, appropriation, commodification, and industry and find ways of bringing them out to affect the conversations that people are having out in the real world, not just in these safe spaces. This is what the American experience is about. All of these things, good, bad, and ugly. This is our shared heritage. A heritage rooted in Africa, influenced by Europeans, and assembled in Baltimore. I'm Jared Walker. You can catch Making Music, the banjo in Baltimore and beyond at the Baltimore Museum of Industry through October 18th. In a minute, espionage goes from the world stage to the thriller page. People who've been in the business 
If I can write a book that makes them happy, then I don't care what anybody else thinks of it. That and more is just ahead on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, And this week, we're exploring the international side of our nation's capital with our annual Global DC show. In just a bit, we'll investigate the world of global espionage with a CIA analyst who's writing thrillers inspired by his day job. But first, the story of two famous artists, one French, renowned for his depictions of ballerinas, the other American, acclaimed for her scenes of family life. A new exhibition at the National Gallery of Art explores the impassioned relationship between Edgar Degas and Mary Cassatt. NPR's special correspondent Susan Stamberg takes us there. More than halfway through her novel about Degas and Cassatt, author Robin Oliveira writes, Her fingertips grazed his cheek as he kissed her. They sank into one another. Well, it's about time. They waited 188 pages. Fact? Fiction? Novelist Oliveira is a bit coy. Nobody knows what goes on in their neighbor's house, let alone what happened between two artists 130 years ago. And it was a powerful relationship, tumultuous, full of passion, but physical? This is a romance in the sense that it, in many ways, is a romance of two like minds who admired one another greatly and who, I believe, completely relied on one another for artistic and emotional help. And their relationship is a sort of an elevated intellectual love affair that tied them to one another for the rest of their lives after they met. Still, in I Always Loved You, the novelist imagines a kiss, but with no diaries or letters to consult for evidence, National Gallery curator Kimberly A. Jones thinks platonic, a passionate aesthetic attraction. That is certainly my belief. I mean, there's no indication there was anything romantic between the two of them. Okay, time to give People magazine back to the dentist. What was the relationship between this American in Paris and a Frenchman 10 years her senior, known and respected then mostly in artistic circles? It was all about the art and that kind of laser focus and 100% dedication to art that they really shared. They met in 1877. At 33, Cassatt was studying painting in Paris. At 43, Degas' work was on view around town. He was already in her mind's eye. Even before she actually met him, she recounts how she had seen one of his pastels in a storefront window, and she pressed her nose up against it and was just dazzled by what he was able to do. She knew his art and was thinking, this is the direction I should be going in. So he really did change her path. Author Robin Oliveira, apart from the smooch her novel, is based on tons of research. She says before the Dugas dazzle, Cassatt had been trying to master a more traditional approach. He helped her switch from the academic style of painting that she had been trying to learn, and that was the sort of the standard across Paris, and encouraged her along into the Impressionist style, the Impressionist brushstroke, the use of color and light, the subject matter change. Neither Degas nor Cassatt liked the term Impressionism. To them, it implied carelessness, haste. They called themselves independents and labored over their work, although it looked so fresh. 
A year after meeting Degas, Cassatt made a painting that was, for her, a real break in style. Little Girl in a Blue Armchair is full of Degas' influence. First of all, he brought the girl to Cassatt. She was the child of his friends. She sits with a hand behind her head and her legs spread apart. It's actually a very modern pose. The little girl is slumped down in a blue armchair in a very pretty dress. She is reclining back in the chair. Curator Kimberly Jones. They're looking quite exhausted after probably a day of running around and playing. What you see in her face is exhaustion. What I see is, could we get this over, please? I'm so tired <laughs> of sitting here. This is definitely a very bored little girl. She, you know, she's tired. This is not a dainty, prim little proper girl. There are other big blue chairs and a sofa in the room, like bumper cars, Jones says. In the rear left-hand corner, a window may show Degas' direct influence. National Gallery conservator Anne Hernigswald was intrigued by a letter Cassatt sent to her art dealer. She says that Degas came into her studio and actually worked on the painting. Hernigswald used x-rays, infrared imaging, and magnification to study a diagonal, unusual in a cassette background, that builds across the canvas from that rear corner window. We looked at it, and indeed the strokes were a little bit different. They're these sharp, small, quick strokes that we weren't seeing anywhere else. Ta-da! The brushwork of Degas, perhaps. And both conservator and curator say Cassatt influenced him. Degas has an unusual mixture of media in one picture, pastels, oil, and metallic paint. Cassatt used metallic paint on canvas first. Ordinarily, it was for decorating crafts. Curator Jones believes Degas saw Cassatt's metallics and decided to try it himself. They worked side-by-side at times, went to exhibitions together. Degas drew and painted Cassatt often. A frequent image, Cassatt at the Louvre, painted from the rear, big hat, smart jacket, long skirt, tiny waist, her right hand and arm leaning on an umbrella as if it were a walking stick. And so you have this wonderful juxtaposition of the feminine curves of her body, the way he has her leaning really plays off you know, the swell of her hips and you know, her waist. But you have that powerful arm, and it's this perfect balance of elegance and strength. She looks to me extremely confident and rather judgmental. That is, she's looking at these paintings and she's thinking, mm, that one's okay, mm, not so good, mm, okay. Yes, it's a very... I mean, this is a woman, she is in control. Mary Cassatt owns that space. Degas worked that image of Cassatt in pencil, pastel, prints, paint, and at the National Gallery, the show runs there till early October, curator Kimberly Jones says Degas also captured Cassatt in the art he bought. He owned more works by Cassatt than any other contemporary artist, more than Pizarro, Manet, Gauguin. They remained friends all their lives, although they went their separate artistic ways in later years. Their interests and styles changed. Degas' eyesight failed, so did Cassatt's. But the intensity of their relationship, the early obsessions, shaped each of them. In Washington, I'm Susan Stamberg, NPR News.
We have images from Degas Cassatt on our website, metroconnection.org. You can check out the exhibition at the National Gallery through October 5th. We'll wrap up our tour of global D.C. with our monthly conversation with local writers, a segment we call Bookend. Mark Henshaw was once an analyst with the CIA. Now he draws on his experience at the Intelligence Gathering Agency to add an extra dose of believability to his espionage thrillers, Red Cell and its sequel, Cold Shot, which hit bookshelves in May. Jonathan Wilson spoke with Henshaw at his home in Leesburg, Virginia. So in terms of actually writing and actually honing your craft, even before you wrote the first novel or thought, like, maybe I'll get this published, were you writing stories and, and creating these characters? And were you diligent about it? Or was it kind of just a hobby that you didn't know what was going to come of it? Kind of the latter. Um, how I actually got serious about it is an, an interesting story. I, uh, I had talked about it on and off, and I dabbled a little bit here or there, but I definitely wasn't being you know disciplined about it. And I won an exceptional performance award at work one day, which came with some money attached. And I, I came home and uh, told my wife about this. And I said, so which student loan do you want to go throw this money at? And she looks at me and she goes, we're not going to do that. You're going to take that money. You're going to go to the Apple store. You're going to buy yourself a MacBook and you're going to write that novel you've always been talking about. But here's the catch. Uh, you have one year to write the book, and if you don't get it done in one year, I get the laptop. You know, so she kind of, kind of kicked my rear end that way. And of course, it took me seven years to get it written. So every year, I sort of had to get down and plead and justify that you know I'm making progress. And so she was gracious and let me do that. Definitely learned through the process that people who aren't disciplined about it don't get done. It's the kind of thing where if you're not doing it pretty religiously every day, sitting down getting your thousand words out or however much, uh, most of those people just never get through the process, never get done, never get published. How were you feeling about taking elements of what you do for a living and putting it into a fictional work? I mean, did you feel strange about that? Were you worried about, okay, I got to make this different enough or I got to make this realistic enough? I mean, how did you kind of navigate those waters when you were coming up with a story? I'm the kind of guy... I can't read most thrillers or watch most spy shows on TV or movies because having worked at the agency, all I see is the stuff they're getting wrong. So I figured if I'm going to do this, I need to be writing sort of for myself and people who've been in the business. If I can write a book that makes them happy, you know, then I don't care what anybody else thinks of it. So I sat down to write the most realistic book that I could. The agency has a group called the Publications Review Board that polices this area. And every uh, CIA officer who joins up, one of the first things you do in that first week when you're signing all of the paperwork and whatnot, you sign a legal agreement. And it's a lifelong legal agreement that sticks to you even after you leave the agency. That if you're ever going to write anything on espionage or, or the agency or any of the subjects that you worked on, uh, you have to submit your manuscript to the publication review board so they can go through it and make sure you're not revealing anything that shouldn't be revealed. So I knew that there sort of was that safety net there, so I tried not to censor myself very much. Let them censor you. Yeah, let them censor me. So I kind of pushed the boundaries as far as I thought I could get away with, and then I submitted it to them, and 
we had some back and forth with them. There were a few things they wanted taken out, a few things they wanted changed with each of the books. But it was interesting. It was never as much as I thought. And a lot of times, the stuff that they wanted pulled out was not the stuff that I would have thought they wanted pulled out, and they left other things in. How many people go to the Publications Review Board with novels? I mean, you know, are people walking around the agency saying, man, as soon as I get this novel finished, you know, does everybody have a novel idea? Or are you, were you like one of the few brave people to, you know, go ahead and do this? Um, more than you would think. I mean, it's not a huge number. Most of the people who have to go to the Publication Review Board tend to be, you know, folks who are like writing their memoirs and things. George Tenet, when he wrote his memoir, he had to go through and work with them and get all of that stuff cleared. But most of the people who write fiction in the agency tend to avoid thrillers and espionage in favor of other genres, because if they write in other genres, science fiction or historical or whatever, they don't have to get that stuff cleared, and they can just bypass it. For a while, I don't think it's still there, but there was a creative writer's group inside the agency, and, and they, the name of it was Invisible Inc. That was their name. Uh, and I went, you know, I went to some of those meetings and talked to some of those people, and they all were re- very smart, very good writers. They were writing interesting stuff, but I was the only one who was looking at writing espionage. Everybody else, it was science fiction or horror or fantasy or, or almost anything else but just because they didn't want to go and deal with the PRB. That was author Mark Henshaw talking with Metro Connection's Jonathan Wilson. You can hear more of their conversation, including Henshaw revealing his biggest pet peeve about spy thrillers on TV. Just visit our website, metroconnection.org. And that's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Lauren Oberg, Ethan Cardoza, Jonathan Wilson, and Jared Walker, along with NPR's Susan Stamberg and reporter Alice Olstein. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Julie Alderman and Lindsay Sperber. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We have information on all the music we use on MetroConnection.org. Just click a story for information about its accompanying song. You can also hear the entire show on our website by clicking This Week on Metro Connection, or you can subscribe to our podcast. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll celebrate Independence Day with a show we're calling A Different Drummer. We'll meet iconoclasts and independent folks of all stripes, from entrepreneurs to artists to musicians who literally march to their own beat. This gives us the opportunity to kind of relive those band days growing up. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.